Hey, 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 guys. Welcome to Building This Community. This is your city business and policy development podcast. We're your hosts, Luke Patrick and Andrew Klump. Welcome to this week's episode of Building This Community. Our guest today is Professor Ariana Levinson, who is a tenured professor at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law, who focuses primarily on union and labor law, as well as cooperatives. Ariana, how are you? Good morning, Andrew. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I gave a little brief background about you, but can you just kind of give a little more depth? Certainly. So I started my law career um, clerking for two amazing judges, um, Myra Selby, who was on the Indiana Supreme Court, and John Davies, who has passed, but was on the Central District of California in L.A. Um, After that, I practiced union side labor law for around seven years. And then I transitioned into the academy and ultimately into teaching labor and employment law, as well as other courses related to my scholarship. As you mentioned, my scholarship focuses on labor arbitration, on technology and its relation to the workplace, and on specifically worker-owned cooperatives. So, Professor, that's a pretty interesting background, but just diving right in, I often feel like there's maybe a misunderstanding among people about the purpose or structure of unions in the U.S. Can you maybe explain what it takes to form a union and and some of the, the benefits involved with membership? Definitely. So one thing to understand before you can really understand the impact of unionization in the United States that many people do not realize is that most employment relationships in the U.S. are at will. And what that means is that your employer does not need a good reason to terminate you. Your employer can actually terminate you for any reason. And there are many, many cases where people have been terminated for things as simple as laughing when their boss told them not to laugh with the customers anymore. So when you realize that, then you can understand the significance of unionization in our country. So when um, people have problems or difficulties at work, and the pandemic has definitely highlighted the issue that people do have problems at work. So when people have problems at work, whether it's with their scheduling, whether it's it's with their health and safety, whether it's with somebody um, bullying or just not getting along well with someone. Uh, One way that people address this is by joining together. So unionization in its um, simple conception is simply when people join together to solve their workplace problems. And more specifically, the way that our legal framework is set up, it gives uh, workers a way to formalize their relationship with each other. And it gives people um, a way to formally negotiate with their employer to try to change or better their working conditions. And then beyond that, The way it works in the U.S., once you've unionized, you usually get a type of contract, a collective bargaining agreement. And that's really critical because it normally provides you that right to only be terminated or only be disciplined for a good reason. So that's one of the ways that in the U.S. you can get that protection. In the U.S., it takes 50% of the workers in in a particular Um, plant or location or a particular division, people who have a common interest, common workplace problems, they organize together and they can join a union. Through their union, they can now have bargaining power to try and solve some of these workplace problems. The legal framework we use here requires that you have 50% of the people in that unit, in that location or division, plus one. And when you have that, then the majority of you would like to formally unionize um, and you can get that formal relationship. You can do it either through an election process or more informally where an employer agrees that 50 
percent plus one want to join the union and recognizes the union. Yeah, I, I think that is a great overview. I know you taught me labor law, so that seems to bring you know a lot of a lot of memories back. But it, one thing that I think comes up a lot is we have seen over the you know past hundred years, past century, a lot more progress on labor laws just generally from the government. Do you think that unions are still necessary with, you know, like the National Labor Relations Act and, and things like the minimum wage laws that help protect workers more so than in the past? So most experts will agree that at this current time, the National Labor Relations Act is not working effectively. While it is true that in the broad strokes since, say, the turn of the century, we have made progress in terms of rights of employment, the NLRA is from 1935. It's very outdated. It doesn't deal with the type of technological change and the type of internationalization and, you know, more people working from home rather than in the workplace. None of that is accounted for in the National Labor Relations Act. So it's Mm -hmm. a very outdated legislation. There's been several times that worker rights advocates have pushed at the federal level, and it's a federal act, so it has to be revised at the federal level. They've pushed for um, some kind of addition or substitute to that act. It's also pretty generally agreed that the minimum wage is too low. We haven't seen any, you know, increase in the minimum wage for quite some time. So when we look even more holistically at um, all of the employment laws that are out there, even when you do have um, protections as we do from, at least on the law, you know, from wage theft, from discrimination because of your gender, your disability, your religion, your race, your ethnicity. We have these laws on the book, health and safety laws, but laws don't self-enforce. So when you join together and you have a union, that is a way that you can make sure that your employer is complying with these laws that we have on the books. So I'm forgetting the original question, but I would say that at this time, uh, with all the changes we've had in employment, with the growth and inequality of wealth, with the recognition that we're in the third reconstruction, we really need some labor and employment laws that are more protective for workers. Yeah, so, so essentially, that the, the idea is that not just that employment laws need to be revised, but in order to effectively enforce those, you need to have that balance of power in the workplace and have a union in place so that there's some entity that is pushing to have these laws actually enforced on the employers, because otherwise there's no true watchdog. Exactly, so you could have a law, but it may not be followed. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So uh, uh, along that same vein, we've seen in, in recent years, several states, including Kentucky, have passed uh, the so-called right-to-work laws. Can you explain what those are and how they impact employment, unions, and just kind of the working class? Yeah, so right-to-work is really a misnomer, and that was recognized a long time ago. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about how it didn't give you any rights, um, and certainly not a right to a job or to work. So it confuses a lot of people. But once you've had that recognition of a union, you've had the 50% plus one in the group of people that want to organize. And the reason I keep emphasizing that is because in other countries, there is sectorial bargaining. So you don't have to go plant by plant trying to join your coworkers. You can join all the workers in an industry in bargaining. So in any event, in the U.S., since it is plant by plant, and then part of what happens when you join a union, just like when you join, um, if you're a member of a professional society, you're a member of a baseball league, whatever you're a member of, you pay some dues or some fee. And so people pay dues to a union. When they pay dues to the union, 
the union uses that money in a variety of ways. Most of the money is used to try and enforce the contract and to enforce the laws to make sure that the workers in that location are um, safe, that they're not being bullied, they're not being discriminated against, that they get their notice of their schedule in advance. So they're spending the bulk of the money on that. Um, and then they spend some of the money on things like supporting other organizations or um, lobbying for other worker laws and nobody has to pay dues for that so everybody in the union even when right to work isn't involved uh, only has to pay the amount that goes for negotiating their contract and protecting uh, their rights in the workplace but what right to work does when it's passed it makes it unlawful for the employer and the union to collect the dues, the part of the dues that goes towards protecting those employees in the workplace. So what it does is it creates what scholars call a collective action problem or what a layperson may think is a free rider problem because it incentivizes people not to pay the dues because they still get protected by the union, but they don't have to pay anything. So that's what ends up happening when you pass a right to work law from the technical legal aspect. I couldn't agree more. I've always taken issue with the name right to work. It just doesn't seem indicative of what those laws actually purport to do. But moving on, uh, recently, Amazon made headlines by defeating a unionization effort in Alabama. And that got us thinking, like, what are companies legally able to do to head off efforts to unionize? And do we ever see them maybe breaking the rules in order to prevent unionization? So, yes, um, that the Amazon case of Bessinger and the retail union was very highly followed. And there's actually um, two types of cases pending in front of the National Labor Relations Board involving the question of whether Amazon went beyond the law and engaged in unlawful activity. There is um, one case that, that deals with the election process, which is what everybody was watching. And, you know, personally, it was pretty cool that the NLRB was letting people from the public um, observe that process because it was a great education tool for people to see how that process worked. But back to the substance of what happened, um, you saw the election process and for a period of days leading up to the election, there are supposed to be certain practices, best practices that both the employer and the union follow so as not to unduly influence any particular member's vote. So there is one proceeding in front of the National Labor Relations Board where the union has brought objections saying that Amazon went beyond what the law requires and did other things. And among those, there's many, I think they have something like 23 objections, but among the things that they um, allege were objectionable are captive audience speeches, which are when um, too close to the election, the employer calls in all the employees and doesn't permit them to leave and tells them why they should vote against the union. There's actually an allegation that they dismissed an employee because of union activity in those objections. Um, and then there's the one you've probably heard a lot about in the news that Amazon installed a U.S. Postal Service box and tried to create the impression for the employees that they controlled that box and were counting the votes or seeing which way people voted. So there's a lot of things that Amazon or any other employer can do that are perfectly legal that might intimidate people from voting for the union. An example with Amazon is that I believe they had security or even a police officer patrolling the parking lot. Um, and there's nothing that says that, you know, that that's illegal to do that. It's also perfectly legal to hire a person who specializes 
in talking to your employees about reasons not to vote for a union. So um, and then there's the things that cross the line, right? And the things that cross the line are the things like um, terminating or disciplining someone or the other things that create the appearance that you're interfering in the election. And then there's a second case pending, and that's the unfair labor practice case. In that case, again, if you terminate someone or discriminate against someone because they're trying to act in concert with their fellow employees or they're trying to be pro-union, that crosses over and is clearly in violation of the law. So it's pretty complicated. There's a lot that employers can do without violating the law. Um, and then there's some things that employers do actually fairly regularly, even though they do violate the law. Um, threatening plant closure was one of the things at issue. Um, oftentimes the process is so long um, and there's not really any significant remedy for committing an unfair labor practice. So it's unfortunately something like how the Ford Pinto was, where it was just cheaper to pay for the death suits, the wrongful death suits or the you know, the suits that people died in accidents than it was to fix the problem with the Pinto exploding. So sometimes, unfortunately, employers decide, well, the benefit of squashing the union movement really early on is worth the risk of having the NLRB order us to post a notice later, long, later on or worth the bad publicity. Yeah, it's so tough to kind of imagine the, those conversations taking place up at the management level. But I, I want to hit real quick on the, you mentioned uh, retaliating against employees for efforts to unionize is not permissible. Is the burden of proof, I would assume, on the employee to prove that that was the reason for their termination? Yes, it operates similarly to if you were bringing any kind of gender or race discrimination case in court and needed to prove that your gender was the reason for the discrimination. So the union will need to prove that the reason the worker was terminated or, or in this case, not the union, but the NLRB will have to prove the reason that they were terminated was because of their union activity. So yes, the employer will often be able to show something else, like they were tardy or they were insubordinate. Um, so there'll be questions around causation. Yeah, well, I, I can imagine how that could play out against the employee pretty easily. But uh, moving on, I think another thing that we've talked about recently is, is the BLM protests and the, and the movement in general. And we've seen a lot of criticism uh, around that movement lobbied specifically police unions and even calls for them to be disbanded. Can you maybe tell us about your work with the 490 project and, and how you all are attempting to address the, the perceived problems with police unions? Yes. Um, so first I would say that um, I don't personally really consider um, many of the Fraternal Order of Police organizations to be true unions in the sense that um, for a true union, they usually consider themselves part of a larger movement to advance workers' rights. And with the police orders or organizations, the fraternal organizations, we find that they're often involved um, as police officers, their job is to protect property. And that means that they will often defend property rights. And so historically, we have seen a lot of incidents where police or private security have been used to really quash um, unionization and to quash people acting collectively, whether marching through the streets of Los Angeles or sitting in at a steel plant um, in Pittsburgh. So, um, so that's just one thing that I'll say. And then in terms of the collective bargaining agreements themselves, um, many of them have provisions that are non-standard in other 
collective bargaining agreements, but in particular, our collective bargaining agreement here in Louisville for the LMPD has a number of clauses that are both non-standard, meaning unheard of, even in other police contracts, and um, really have dangerous outcomes for many, especially those um, who have been historically most oppressed or discriminated against in our community. So they have a no layoff provision. That would be something unheard of in other contracts. When you ask other other union leaders about their contracts, what they have normally is um, either layoffs by seniority or a no subcontracting clause, but to just have an outright no layoff clause is unbelievable. They're able to throw citizen complaints away after 90 days. They're able in some cases to not even make a record of the citizen complaint. You don't see that in other contracts. Um, they have a memo where they can only be suspended without pay for like basically conduct that would never occur. So they can't be suspended for the normal things that progressive discipline would warrant, like being tardy or even non-progressive, you know, if you stole, you would be immediately suspended, things like that. So the contract is really problematic. And because of that, that is why I am working with the 490 Project, because their goal is to have these dangerous provisions removed from the Metro, Louisville Metro um, River City FOP contract. Has there been any movement on that front? Like, have you guys started to make any progress towards that goal? So um, we did early on manage to meet with the mayor's office um, two times. They've shut off all channels of communication with us at this time. But when they were communicating, they did say they would try to renegotiate the provision that permits throwing out the complaints after 90 days. Um, beyond that, we have been working with Metro Council members. Uh, we haven't been very successful as of yet, but it hasn't come to the Metro Council yet, and there are definitely Metro Council members who will vote against that contract if those provisions have not been negotiated out. But there is a suit pending uh, that the FOP brought to try and stop the Metro Council from being able to vote. And the contract actually expires today, and they're not finished negotiating, and it will not come to Metro Council until they do finish negotiating. And in the past, it's taken over a year for them to finish negotiating. So there may be nothing Metro Council can vote on for another year, which is very unfortunate. Um, and then finally, we've been doing a lot of education. It's been very well received just to people in the community and asking them to either pressure the mayor or to talk to their council person about voting no when the contract does come up on a vote. The 490 project is committed to divestment from police and investment into um, social services and ways to address the really actual concerns that are leading, leading to crime and leading to people not being well, not thriving and not being safe. And so they have spent time as well talking about that with the city council and with the public. Well, and it seems like this whole, maybe part of the differences with police fraternal unions versus traditional unions is just the hyper politicalization of their involvement, their regulations uh, compared to most unions. Obviously, politics plays part in all of it, but it just seems like there's more politics involved when it comes to fraternal unions. And I just that add that the fraternal unions represent people who carry firearms and who regularly engage in violence and who unfortunately often end up killing people. And so I think that it's not just an issue of 
politicization, but I don't think it's just that. I think it's that the impact of what they do is very significant, very dangerous, and falls upon the people who we have historically oppressed. And so I think that's why you see a lot more focus on police contracts than on other types of contracts. I think that seems to make sense. Now, let's transition a little bit into another area where you are an expert, and that is you become a national authority on cooperatives. Can you just, uh, and I know you and I both work together a little bit with the Louisville Community Grocery. I know you still have an active role with them, uh, but can you just explain what the what cooperatives are? Yes, so I see my scholarship on worker-owned cooperatives as falling squarely within employment law and labor law scholarship because a worker cooperative is a company or a business that is owned by all of the workers and they not only own it but they have some significant say um, usually an equal vote in how the company is run so in decision making and so we're really familiar with partnerships if we think of having a partnership but expanding it rather than only including the partners and not the administrative staff and not um, the people who clean if we think of expanding the ownership to a wider net of people to all of the people who make that business work then that's when we have a worker-owned cooperative so then what is a what is a union cooperative and how are they set apart from traditional cooperatives so a union cooperative at base is any cooperative where those worker owners have decided to join together in a union. But the sense that we use it in currently in the U.S. is that there's a social movement that is working in partnership with unions and those who wish to form cooperatives or who work in the industry forming cooperatives. And so in those instances, you see unions and uh, people forming cooperatives and helping people form cooperatives working together uh, to make sure that the workplace will be a place that the employees control, but also that on the day-to-day level, which the union can help a lot with, that there's policies and procedures that will make things run efficiently and smoothly in the company. So we have our close example, as you know, um, in Cincinnati with the Cincinnati Co-op Initiative, where they have a farm where the employee owner, the worker owners are unionized, and they have a sustainergy and energy company where that is happening. The biggest example in the US is the Home Health Care Associates in New York City, represented by SCIU Local. And another really cool example of a union co-op is the lobster men, which they prefer men uh, in Maine. They have a union cooperative, and there are other examples. So uh, just as, as a quick follow-up to it, is there a benefit to having a union cooperative versus a traditional cooperative? Other, I mean, because you would think, right, with cooperatives, especially if it's worker-owned, they're all getting a voice, they're all getting voting rights. Why would there be the need for unionization in a worker-owned cooperative? Right. So with the like with the cooperative home care associates, they're really large, like hundreds of workers, if not thousands of workers. Um, And so when that as as a cooperative scales, right? So you can imagine if you just have five people, that's pretty easy for them to work things out. But as you get into hundreds of employees, then that becomes the usual situation with any human organization. Right? There's going to mm-hmm. be problems. Um, and the union's going to be a way, like we talked at the very outset, to make sure that the health and safety things are being followed, that the personal disagreements are worked out, that 
that the person isn't being um, harassed because of their gender. So internally, that's one reason, but there's lots of external reasons and sometimes they're particular to an industry. So for instance, smaller um, cooperatives, the workers may join a union because they're not big enough to buy the health insurance at a good cost on the market. And when they join with the union and with others in the industry, they can join a health care plan or some other type of benefit plan, dental, legal representation through the union. Um, with the lobster people, they needed to do some lobbying, I think, to be able to, maybe not with the lobster people, but in some industries, there needs to be some lobbying expertise to be able to interact with state actors or local actors. And that can be something that the union brings to the table. And just at the most basic level, the unions have already established organizations and they have workplaces or meeting places that they can provide. They have expert personnel who know about dispute resolution or about collective action or about organizing. They can loan them to those who are trying to form a co-op or who need a training within their co-op. So there are a lot of reasons that can vary um, by the group of people forming the cooperative or those who own the cooperative, why it is they would choose to also affiliate with or work with a union. That makes sense. So I guess my, my last follow-up on cooperatives is, you know, why, why should people be encouraged to learn more about cooperatives and why should we attempt to have more cooperatives in the community? as far as types of businesses. Yeah, totally. Worker-owned cooperatives, they're like you've written about, Andrew. It's really mm -hmm. something that everyone can support. It's a bipartisan issue. We saw that with the Main Street Business Act that was passed a couple years ago and employee ownership. So it really uh, gives us a way to combat the wealth inequality that we see to um so to me that's really significant but even if um wealth and race disparities are not significant to you so you know one reason to look to these is they can combat those disparities when you have say a white female sole owned business and you convert it and now all of the women of color who work there are also owners, now you've spread wealth and you start to tackle the problem of wealth concentration because by having more owners, you have more people earning wealth. So that's important. But just on the firm level, why it's important is business owners should really read up about it because employee ownership will um, generally reduce your turnover it will give you a mechanism to withstand recession because owners are more likely to cut back their hours than to terminate any particular person or lay off any particular person. The studies will show that your productivity will increase because owners are more invested. They see it as their own business. Um, people generally will find their work more satisfying. They'll be more invested. So from the employee's perspective, that's really important. And from the owner's perspective, you have all those um, wins in terms of cost savings. So there's a host of reasons. Um, another reason that might be compelling for people is that something like 50% of small business owners nationwide are planning to retire within the next five years. And oftentimes there's not a family member who wants to take that business over. That means the business will close or that a venture capital firm will come in and buy it and it will be removed from the local economy. So if you are interested in preserving jobs in a local area like Louisville, it would be really smart to check out what they're doing in New York City and to start helping uh, retirees to sell their companies to their owners. That gives them money for retirement and it retains those jobs in our community. That's actually a pretty interesting exit strategy for somebody that might be thinking about retiring or getting out of the business. 
But Professor, we honestly, we really appreciate you coming to talk with us today. You clearly brought a great deal of expertise to the conversation. But before we can let you go, we got just a couple more questions as we wrap up here. We wanted to give you a chance. Uh, do you have any other projects that you're currently working on that you'd like a chance to promote? Well, I'm definitely promoting the 490 project. So I would say check out their um, Facebook page. And beyond that, I'm hopeful that our continuing legal education program for labor and employment lawyers will be here at least in the form of a keynote sometime in late October, early November. So I hope people will follow the UFL law um, social media webpage to get notice of that. Um, I'm, I'm always, as Andrew knows, trying to bring together people interested in the conversion strategy. So if anyone's interested in that, I would say to reach out to Andrew and he can connect them with our group. And basically, I probably am always involved in too many things, but those are the main three I would mention. <laughs> no, that, that that's great. And it shows, I think, a, a great work ethic. But uh, uh, as we're winding down, we do like to ask all of our guests this final question. If you had the power to change one policy here in Louisville, just kind of wave the magic wand and make it happen, what would it be? So I want to preface this by saying that I am definitely, based on my expertise, a firm believer that change does not come about by individuals or even a group of leaders, but it comes about by collective action and social movement, which is probably not surprising given what we've talked about. <laughs> and in particular, I'm a firm believer, as most people who would be union side labor lawyers are, that we need to focus our attention on listening to working with and promoting policies that those who have been historically um, oppressed by structural inequality, not that anyone is necessarily intentionally discriminating, but we have a lot of systemic discrimination, unfortunately, still in our country. So it is um, our obligation as leaders and people with power to work with them, to ask them what their needs are and to address their problems. So that is the reason that I am working with the 490 project. And so that is the reason that I would put those reforms first. But if I were the queen for the day, the policy I would implement was to make sure that we had a very robust policy within Louisville Metro supporting the formation of worker-owned cooperatives. I think for the reasons we just discussed that it's imperative and we've seen um, other cities like Cincinnati, other states like North Carolina, um, the great programs in Colorado, the programs in New York City. We have a lot of programs we could replicate. And I think that would make huge positive change that um, almost everybody could agree with. So I would like to see an actual program, actual funding, actual setting up of technical assistance, actual training from um, the city and the Small Business Development Center to people about worker-owned cooperatives. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more with that. So I, yeah, think, but, I think you and I are on the same page with that. Yeah, and based on the scope of the conversation today, those answers track pretty well. <laughs> but, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And we really do appreciate you, you hopping on with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Professor Levinson. It was great getting a chance to talk. Yes, same. Thank you for having me. We'll pick back up with our reaction segment after a word from our sponsor. That was another interesting episode, this time with our former professor, Ariana Levinson. Uh, personally, she's, she's been a mentor for me, and she is incredibly brilliant, especially in the areas of labor and unemployment and cooperative law. And I think what she started to do now in the community and, and using her, her influence is, is been incredible. We could kind of see that a little bit in, in the interview that we had today. But what, what did you take away from the interview? Well, I mean, covered a lot of subjects. You could tell uh, Professor Levinson is unbelievably knowledgeable 
about labor law and, and cooperatives and a, a wide range of, of materials. But I really like talking about kind of is the NLRA still applicable today with all the baseline protections that we've afforded workers? Like, do we really still need uh, unions in, in the modern workforce? And I think she made probably the most compelling argument I've heard in favor of continued unionization efforts and honestly, maybe even a strengthening of some of the current protections. Yeah. And that was all. So essentially, I think the biggest takeaway that I had from her union conversation was that one, they act like watchdogs to make sure that laws are actually followed uh, and best employment practices are followed. And two, the NLRA is not as effective as it used to be. And so I think that is, you know, something that at least when I was studying it or taking her classes that I recognized that, you know, like what that there are a lot of things that the unions just don't have as much of an impact on right now as they could. You know, for example, like having a federal minimum wage, you still want that balancing of power and hopefully they can get the unions can get higher wages beyond minimum wage, but that the federal government has enacted so many you know, employment safety protocols and other regulations that do protect employees more so than when the National Labor Relations Act was first passed. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a law that was passed in 1935. Like there's no way that lawmakers Mm -hmm. back then could even imagine what the workforce of today would look like. The other, like you hit it right there. I think the enforcement side of it, the fact that laws don't self-enforce themselves, I thought that was a really interesting Mm -hmm. way to put it. And it's so true. Like if you have an issue with your employer and you don't have a union rep to go to, what are you going to do? You're going to sue. And honestly, like the legal uh, framework around, you know, suits against employers, it's like every law. It's cost prohibitive. It's costly. It's time intensive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's going to take so much effort to bring it to trial or to bring it to an end result that it's probably just not going to be worth it. You know, from an individual. Yeah. From an individual's perspective. Exactly. Yeah. And and then the other thing that I thought she brought up too, um, that I thought was interesting is the union cooperatives. Yeah. And because I know we've, we've talked in the past on the show about the cooperatives, uh, it is interesting to see how the, the, the twist on unions is kind of implemented because just looking at cooperatives generally, right, they are a lot of times, you know, worker and or consumer owned and it's one person, one vote. You don't get any larger share of ownership of the company. It can act somewhat similar to the union and you're voting collectively. But she made the great point, especially when it's larger cooperatives. I mean, if this was a national chain, you know, that they had, if a, if a business had locations all across the country, you, you could see a reason to have a union in addition to still having those same voting rights, even if it is a, a cooperative. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, if you need a deeper dive into union cooperatives, I think you could take a look at our paper for this week. Mm-hmm. It's a, a law professor talks union co-ops and it actually- Dan Cannon. Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's by Dan Cannon. Uh, anybody that goes to UofL probably has run into him. He's a great guy, great, uh, great professor, and a really, really productive uh, advocate for uh, labor and, and all kinds of different causes. Um, but it it covers a, a little bit more in depth, like definitions and and uh, broad questions anyone might have related to union cooperatives, and it highlights a couple of like the larger union co-op uh, organizations like across the U.S. The Equal Exchange, I guess, is like the first one they highlight, and it, it's the probably the best known wo- worker co-op in the U.S. It's got over 130 workers that elect their board of directors uh, from amongst the workers. Um, they bring in over $75 million in revenue. And that kind of stood out to me because I think when you think of union co-ops or when you think of co-ops in general, you're thinking of like a smaller business, $75 million profit is or in revenue is pretty impressive, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and then if 130 workers is not big enough for you, they mentioned the cooperative home care associates. They've got over 4,000 employees, and they're represented by an SEIU branch, I think, out of New York somewhere. But uh, again, it highlighted that these kinds of organizations can come in many different scales. They can be incredibly productive. 
And when you bring all workers into, uh, you know, uh, both a union and a degree of ownership, I think it's going to make them more productive. It's going to make them more attentive and you're going to have lower, lower quit rates. You're going to have a more focused workforce. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And she's actually working on a, on a project now with, I don't think there's actually a name for the group or anything, but she's working with local leaders and I know she's mentioned, you know, worked with Metro Council people and other business leaders. She's been working on the transition of businesses into cooperative. So essentially when a business is looking to, uh, business owners looking to retire, instead of selling it to maybe a competitor or, or somebody else like that, they can sell it to the employees and they wouldn't do it like in ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership plan. They would sell it as a cooperative because that way the employees have equal stakes. And they, again, that goes back the ESOPs can have some, that's the one negative drawback of an ESOP, right? Because the benefits different, aren't equal. Yeah. Different shares of ownership. Yeah. And so I think that is a great way to one, keep good local ownership and but it's also another good thing for branding, right? If you have a, an old mom and pop shop that has tons of name recognition in the community and, and it's great to continue that for employees that recognize that, and understand that rather than necessarily selling to someone else who could come in and may want to continue that legacy or try and change the brand into a different style. So it is cool too, to see these historic brands, you know, that, our local continue because the employees get what the legacy is of, of that company. Yeah. I don't think people, uh, employees especially think enough about the retirement of an owner, what the impact mm -hmm. that could have on them or their work experience, you know, and when you have something like a cooperative or especially a union cooperative, you're safe in knowing that like whenever somebody in a management position does retire, someone else from the work pool is going to slide into that position and it's not going to disrupt things in the same manner that it might if it's you know privately owned uh, you know a regular corporation yeah you could if if the business the local business transitions to a, just a regular new owner your job could be yeah up for grabs right yeah and that's uh, honestly like people don't maybe understand at will employment like how insecure your job is can be fired for any reason or no reason at all as long as it doesn't violate any of the discriminatory policies yeah right? <laughs> i was gonna say you'd like to think something like a right to work law would protect that but that's absolutely not what those laws <laughs> yeah. do as we discussed in the interview and that's one of those things where I think branding is, uh, they did well. Yeah. Whoever, whoever designed those laws, that is, that's a great name for one, but man. I, well, and Alabama started theirs back in 1953. So it's been around for a very long time. I, I couldn't get over that. She made mention of MLK even uh, working against it. And that seems like it's such a long time to have these efforts going on. But, you know, they've been newly resurgent lately. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, and, and the other projects that she brought up that I thought was, I mean, we obviously have to talk about too, right? Is the 490 project, which yep. that's the local effort here in Louisville to, uh, I think, disband the police force and I guess essentially start over. Uh, I'm not sure I understand. Like, I'm not sure that I know the true solution. Obviously, there's an issue, right? And there's a lot of distrust between the community and the police force. I don't know that I know the true solution. And I, you know, maybe it is disbandment, maybe it is retraining, maybe like, I don't know. But one thing that I think is very necessary is, you know, I, I've seen a lot of cities, Louisville included, looking into adding social workers into the police force and to start helping engage in maybe less violent situations and keeping them from escalating, which I think is a great first step. But to me, I think you have to have a completely separate de-escalation task force from the police force. So public safety, the police chief and the police officers would not have control over a separate task force. And that way you could have these, or if they want to be social workers or whatever, unarmed people going to traffic stops, going to domestic violent uh, situations. And that way you have two separate entities reporting on the same situation that they can hold each other accountable. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, there's, there's also a lot of people that don't want to disband the police. So there, it's a very delicate situation. And I don't know that you're going to make everybody, you're definitely not going to make everybody happy. No. But 
there has to be at least some way to at least increase transparency and increase accountability. Yeah, I mean, you hit it. People don't really have – I think there's a growing distrust among uh, Americans about police officers in their communities. And whatever solutions we can put forward to try and bridge that gap, it, it, it's necessary. And I think it, it's tough. There's no simple solutions to a problem this complex, that's for sure. And you, you're right. Nobody's. We're not going to make everybody happy. But I like what you propose, and I, I think some of the more egregious terms in the current collective bargaining agreement here in Louisville that uh, Professor Levinson highlighted, I think they need to go. I mean, something like a a non-layoff provision seems uh, just unbelievable, especially when it's not, especially when it's not in other unions, right? And that's yeah. and that's why she and again they couldn't. It's not technically not a union, but I get where the four hundred and ninety project is coming from, saying that, well, that they don't act like traditional unions. They don't, and I mean they have a monopoly on the use of force against American citizens, and that that's mm-hmm. a huge that sets them apart. And I think the scrutiny that should be paid to them should be so much higher because of that. Mm-hmm. And right now. They're getting all kinds of special protections that preserve their job in the face of scrutiny, and that scrutiny might be related to an unused, unauthorized use of violence. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like I can't imagine protecting someone under those circumstances. It's you know, again, no simple solution, but we need to be looking at solutions. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, Luke, do you have anything else? I got one last thing. Right. I did, didn't find a place to put it in here, but we made mention very offhandedly during the interview about uh, sectoral bargaining. And I just <laughs> want to clear up what that means for people. Like here in the United States, we don't have sectoral bargaining. Other countries, you can think most of Europe has varying degrees of it, but we have enterprise bargaining so, or workplace bargaining. So the example would be in the Amazon unionization effort, if that plant had unionized, it would have affected only that plant. Mm-hmm. In sectoral bargaining, the bargaining is taking place, the collective bargaining or the unionization effort is taking place across an entire sector. So it would have taken place in a sectoral system across all Amazon plants, not just the mm-hmm. one that was trying to, you know, unionize here in America. So yeah, I, I just wanted to clarify what that was, and 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 when well, you see that in different countries too, right? You see it in a lot of countries. You see it honestly in most of Europe. And what happens is when you have that sectoral bargaining, when you have unionization happening across an entire sector at a time versus each individual workplace within that sector, you get much broader coverage of those mm-hmm. collective bargaining agreements. So like here in the US, it's somewhere like 11 or 12% of the workforce is covered by a collective bargaining agreement. In say, I think one of the lowest I saw in Europe was Great Britain and it's something like 30. Uh, and somewhere with like a high rate of coverage, it'd be like the Scandinavian countries, somewhere like Finland or Norway, Sweden, it's like 75 to 85% mm-hmm. uh, coverage of their of their workforce is covered by a collective bargaining agreement. And they don't have a minimum wage. Some countries in Europe have done away with a minimum wage because they don't really need it when so much of their workforce is covered by collective bargaining agreements. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it would take a culture shift, right? It would take a culture shift. It, yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of these policies that we, we talked about today with, with Levinson with would would take a lot of would take a culture shift yeah well it starts with the conversation that's what we're trying to do here that's right well thanks so much for tuning in guys until next time yeah thanks for joining us as always thanks for tuning in thanks for joining us on building this community if you'd like any more information you can follow us on twitter at building this com or you can follow andrew at andrew j clump and you can also follow luke at lmp43 Definitely subscribe and we look forward to talking to you guys next week.